This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It is really my privilege um, to introduce actually both speakers today, though um, Steve Deeks is going to introduce the second speaker at more length. But um, I would say that there are some people who have spoken in this course, including Diane Havler, that are um, not just nationally known but internationally known and I would absolutely put um, Steve Deeks and uh, Peter Hunt in that category but first Steve Deeks who I, I think is literally um, uh, you know people come up to me and they're like you get to work around Steve Deeks um, so uh, it's really my privilege he is a professor um, of medicine and residence here at the UCSF and he also is a clinician in the positive health program where most of the speakers have been we're in the same division which is the HIV AIDS division he is an internationally recognized expert on the role of inflammation in untreated and treated HIV disease and has mentored many people, including um, Dr. Hunt, in this area, and then, and then they have gone on to do great things. He now con- uh, currently really, and he's had a number of research initiatives over the year, but really these days he's most um, looking at both the causes and consequences of inflammation in HIV disease with an eye towards the question of curing HIV infection, which is why he's going to speak about the cure. And he'll go into more detail about the Mississippi child, and then about uh, um, the other known cure case that we've talked, uh, that we talked about at the beginning of this course. He's published over 250 uh, peer-reviewed articles and is often asked to be the editorializer on a topic. He um, has uh, is the principal investigator of a NIH cure initiative called Dare, um, and along with a couple of other um, sites around the country. And he is also the co-chair of the Towards an HIV Cure International Working group. Um, He also is a member of the Department of Human uh, um, Health and Human Services Guidelines Committee, so he helps form the guidelines of how we treat HIV infection, and is a member of the Office of AIDS Research Advisory Council um, nationally. So he really is um, pretty famous, and we're really delighted um, to have him here on speaking about will we ever be able to cure HIV disease. Okay, so I'm going to try to um, tell some stories here about uh, what's going on in the cure world, uh, and um, and I suspect many of you probably have heard some of the uh, excitement around this concept in the media, so I'm going to talk uh, about some of these cases and go a little bit more in detail about what's going on, but before I get there, let me first um, ask the question, uh, so here's the outline, so Bottom line is I want to just talk about why all of a sudden we're talking about HIV cure. Um, uh, talk about the, the reasons why current therapeutic options, which you've heard a lot about in, uh, uh, over the past several weeks, uh, is not curative. What are the barriers to a cure with current antiretroviral drugs? Uh, and then talk about these possible uh, cures that have been reported in the press. First, I'll talk about these um, concepts of a functional cure. I'll define that. We'll talk about the Visconti cohort and then uh, talk about these two famous cases, the Berlin patient and now the Mississippi case, and then mention briefly what's happening in the clinic to move forward. So, why? Why, you know, we've been working on HIV for decades now, and and to be honest, back in the late 90s, a couple of groups tried to go about curing HIV infection. It didn't work, and the topic became taboo, and I'm not entirely sure why that was, but for 
most of the time that I've been involved in research, we were never allowed to say the word cure. We were never allowed to, you know, it was referred to as the C word. But that all changed about two or three years ago. And why is that? And I think there's several reasons. First, as, as Dr. Hunt will go into detail, it's quite clear that current drugs, although they prolong life and, and have a miraculous effect in turning a terminal disease into, a long, into, into one when people can really live a long time, they do not fully restore health. There's ongoing issues. So they're not perfect. Um, but more importantly, the current strategy of treatment, which is essentially to use these drugs to push the virus down but not get rid of it, requires people to take the drugs every day for years, decades. And a lot of people just can't do that for adherence reasons, depression, um, substance abuse, um, um, and most importantly, inability to access these drugs because they're expensive. This is true in Africa. It's true in Asia. It's true in in many parts of uh, uh, of the United States, and it's even true in San Francisco, particularly for people who are sort of working and um, uninsured. So we need better strategies. Uh, another reason we're talking about this is that we now understand why the virus persists, and of course the Berlin patient and now the Mississippi case has given us uh, optimism. Okay, so why does the virus persist when you put people on therapy? The major barrier, the major reason why we cannot get rid of HIV with current therapeutic strategies is that the virus on therapy, goes into hiding. It basically finds itself into these so-called resting memory CD4 T cells. These are T cells which are designed to live for decades. When you had chicken pox as a kid, you generated memory T cells to the chicken pox so that you would remain immune to chicken pox for the rest of your life. Um, And and so these cells, which harbor the virus, are designed to live longer than practically any other cell in the body. And that's where the virus sits. So as long as those cells live, the virus will persist. And current antiretroviral drugs can't get at that virus. Um, another reason, more controversial, is that there may be other populations, not T cells, particularly macrophages, that may harbor HIV indefinitely. Uh, a major problem that we're now struggling with is the fact that as a consequence of HIV, the capacity of the immune system to kill HIV-infected targets which is necessary to clear, this, clear the virus, doesn't work as well. And, and probably the most, one of the more controversial issues in the field, and I'm not going to go to it at all, is the question of whether or not under the surface, particularly in tissue, the drugs that we're giving people now to block the virus from replicating is not 100% effective. And there's low-level rounds of replication, particularly in the lymph nodes. Um, I tend to believe that that's happening. But I tell you that uh, despite years of intensive research, there really is no consensus on this critical question. Uh, And um, further work is ongoing. So this is why the virus persists during therapy. So let me just talk about some of these these cure cases. So first, functional cure. What is a functional cure? So so we we define cure in two ways. One is the, um, one's called a functional cure, which I'll go into now, and the other is, is a sterilizing cure. Um, a functional cure is built on the model of cancer. And it basically, we say up front that we don't think we can completely eliminate the disease, but rather we can actually change the course of the disease so people can live healthy lives for a certain amount of time, let's say five years, in the absence of any therapy. I mean, that's so-called remission. 
This is how we think about cancer, right? You, you never really know if you can truly cure cancer, so you look for five-year disease-free remission. So in, in, in this kind of conceptual model, where we're really saying, you know, we can't get rid of the virus 100%, what we want to do is rebuild the immune system so it can control the virus in the absence of therapy for five years or more. Okay, that would be a functional cure. Now, we think this is possible in large part because about one in 100 people who acquire HIV infection do this on their own. I have people in my clinic who were known to be HIV positive in 1978, and it's now 35 years later, and they're fine. They've never been on antiretroviral drugs, and their virus remains undetectable. Um, They're infected. They have a virus that can replicate, but their immune system somehow figured out how to control it. So these people, to a certain degree, naturally cured themselves of HIV. So the question is, can we do this therapeutically? Um, and the answer to that is, we don't know, but this study, which actually did receive a fair amount of press, although not as much press as was seen in the, with the Berlin patient and the baby case, um, but this study, which came out of, the, of France and was published last month, to me, suggests that we may be able to generate a functional cure. So what this study is, this is the so-called Visconti cohort. Okay, this is 14 people living in France who went on anti- who basically acquired HIV infection and presented to the clinic within a few weeks of becoming infected. Okay? Primary infection, very important. They came in the clinic really early couple weeks or more, about two to four weeks into their infection, and went on drugs. Okay? Most people, typically, it's years before they get on antiretroviral therapy. But this group of 14 people uh, in the Visconti cohort went on therapy within a couple weeks of becoming infected uh, and stayed on therapy for years. And then for whatever reason, we don't really know, stopped drugs on their own. Okay? Now, in France, uh, they had access to about 150 people who did this. And of that 150 people, 14, about 10%, their virus did not rebound. Um, and that is unexpected. Typically, when people go on antiviral therapies and they stop drugs, virus rebounds within weeks, almost in everybody. So the concept that 14 out of 150, let's say 10% of these people did this, went on therapy, stayed on it for a while, stopped it, and did not rebound, suggested to some that treatment that early treatment had altered a natural course so that these people had become sort of elite controllers, okay? Um, and what's shown here in this figure, which is to me one of the more provocative things that's been published lately, this is, if you, if you look at the, if you try to figure out how much HIV is in the body, right, you actually take out T cells from the body and you count the number of T cells that are infected, typically, you know, it's anywhere from 10 to 1,000 T cells in a million are infected and it's stable over time. But this group of this this, this group of um, this Visconti group, not only did the virus not rebound when the drugs st- when the drugs were stopped, but the virus has continued to decline. So there's something really interesting in my mind about this group of people. They don't look anything like those natural controllers. That guy that I was talking about who was infected in 1978 has never been on therapy. These patients look very different. They don't have the same genetic background. They don't have strong HIV-specific T cells. So I'm sort of an optimist. I look at these data and I say, wow, antiretroviral drugs potentially cured these guys. We don't know why. It didn't cure everyone. It was just one in 10 of people did this. But to me, it it, it, it inspired me to think 
that a cure may be easier than we think, and that in addition to the Berlin patient and this baby case, maybe there's 14 additional people in the world who basically were cured of HIV as a consequence of getting on people on therapy early. In my practice, if someone shows up in my clinic and they were infected within the past few weeks, I jump all over it. I say, listen, I'm not sure what's going on in this cohort, but if it's potentially curative, you need to start today. And so this is a, uh, a take-home message from this kind of work, that for those who actually find themselves infected and get into the clinic really early, I think they should go on treatment right away. So that's the Visconti cohort. Um, and that's, I think, a potential example of a functional cure. What about a sterilizing cure? Okay, so this is the other way. This is a much more aggressive approach. This is the much more desired outcome. This is essentially the concept that you go into a person and you remove somehow every single virus in the body. Get rid of it completely. Nothing left, okay? This is not remission. This is not a functional cure. This is a cure, all right? Now, a lot of people who study viruses for a living believe that this is impossible. It's never going to happen. Um, and perhaps the Visconti cohort patients suggest it's not necessary. Those Visconti patients actually have virus. I mean, you can find it. It's there and it replicates. Uh, and the big issue is how do you prove it, right? This is a, a, an issue that the field's dealing with, and I'll, and I'll show uh, why that is in a second. But here, the, typically the approach is not to rebuild the immune system to control the virus, but to force the virus out of its hiding place so that you can get rid of it with the antiretroviral drugs, so-called shock and kill. Now, let's go back to the case that started everything. This is Mr. Timothy Brown, uh, who is a, um, a gentleman that I've come to know. Uh, he's a very passionate person about cure work, um, and he's the Berlin patient, okay? And he's been, he's been um, and I'm mentioning his name and showing his face because he's been in the media a fair amount, and he likes to talk about what happened to him, and he likes to inspire other people to pursue this kind of work. So Mr. Brown was living in Berlin. Um, he's an American. He was living in Berlin uh, about five or six years ago when he developed leukemia, didn't respond to chemotherapy. And a very clever physician in, in, in Germany who was not an HIV expert, and I think that's a really important part of the story. If you actually bring people from outside of our field, they, they often come with fresh ideas. So uh, Dr. Gerald Huter and his colleagues in Germany decided when they needed to treat Mr. Brown's leukemia, they were going to treat it with a bone marrow transplant, but they were going to try to get bone marrow from a person who genetically was not able to be infected with HIV. We've known for years that there's a rare population of people, particularly in northern Europe, who lack CCR5 on their T cells, and as a consequence, their cells cannot be infected with HIV. So the bone marrow transplant was done back in uh, 2007, and um, what this shows here is the patient's viral load. The patient before, before the transplant got sick, stopped his medications, his virus load went up, he went back on medications, um, his virus load became undetectable, and he underwent a bone marrow transplant back in 2007 or so. And what they did in Germany is they, they gave Mr. Brown massive amount of chemotherapy. They just wiped out his own immune system because that's what you need to do to cure the leukemia. And then they rebuilt his immune system uh, with the bone marrow from the donor. Mr. Brown stopped his antiretroviral drugs a few days after the transplant, and now he's six, five to six years out, and the virus has never showed up. Um, a couple years ago, he moved back to the United States and was living in San Francisco. 
and he began to participate in some of the studies that I run along with Dr. Hunt. And we talked to Timothy a fair amount and said, listen, we would like to know whether or not, a simple question everyone knows, were you truly cured? Did you have a functional cure or did you have a sterilizing cure? And so he went under went a series of extensive evaluation over a period of 18 months in which multiple blood tests were sent to multiple labs around the world in which he also had a, um, uh, a sigmoidoscopy done to see if there's any virus in his rectum, rectal tissue. He had lymph node biopsies. I mean, he participated in a, in a fair amount of these invasive procedures. And, um, and, and I'll never forget, you know, whenever we asked him to participate in something else, he always said yes and showed up the next day because he really wanted to help the field advance in this area. And we distributed this tissue and this blood everywhere in the world. We asked everyone who was really good at this, is there any virus left? And the vast majority of times we did this, the answer was no. But there was always these occasional tests that came back that suggested there was just a little bit of stuff left behind, um, RNA or DNA, nucleic acid. Um, and, and the field is still trying to figure out what this means. The same thing that happened in that Mississippi baby case that I'll talk about next is that when you look really deep, you can always find some evidence of HIV. Now, when you start looking really deep and using assays that aren't really that accurate, picking up really low levels of stuff, you, you never know what you're going to find. So in an HIV-negative person, if you look really hard, you may find pieces of your own DNA or RNA that looks a little bit like HIV. So we're not sure whether or not this is true or not, and this is an issue. Really, how are you going to actually diagnose and, 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 um, and characterize the cure when there's so little virus around is a big issue. Um, but anyway, uh, we basically have decided as a group that whether or not he's got some dead RNA or DNA in around, who cares? Right? He is cured. He does not have any replication competent HIV. The virus is not rebounded. His immune system, his antibody levels are waning, like he doesn't have any virus. He's basically becoming HIV negative as we speak. Now I turn this to the Berlin, to the uh, to the so-called Mississippi case, and this is a very interesting story. And uh, the the work is not published, so I'm not I don't have access to all the details. But this is the baby, right? This is the baby. This story was last month was on basically um, every media outlet in the world, as far as I could tell, uh, covered this um, as a, as the top story of the day. So what happened here? So this was um, a a a, a the story of a pregnant mom living in Mississippi who um, was not involved in care. She was HIV positive. Her, her actually disease was not that bad. Her viral load was pretty low, um, but she was not on medications. And she showed up and delivered her baby without having the option to start antiretroviral drugs before the delivery, which we like to do to prevent transmission. So um, she... Uh, um, uh, delivered the baby, and her the pediatricians involved in the case were so concerned about the fact that she had not been on antiretroviral drugs that at 31 hours after delivery, they started the baby on standard antiretroviral drugs. Not drugs aimed at prevention, but treatment. They were so convinced that she may have been infected. So the baby was started on therapy at hour 31 of, of, of her life. Just prior to that, uh, Samples were, were collected and sent off, and they came back showing a fair amount of virus. She actually had a lot of HIV DNA and a lot of HIV RNA in her blood prior to treatment. So she looked like she was infected. She went on the baby went on antiretroviral therapy, and the viral load dropped um, dramatically. 
in a way, and I'm showing this because for people who do this for a living, when you see the viral load drop like this on therapy, that looks like a standard way that the that virus is supposed to respond to treatment. And many of us look at this and say, you know, we don't know what happened here, but she was clearly infected because her viral load was easily detectable uh, over a period of several days, a few weeks, and it was declining in a way that you might expect. So what happened next? So she went on, the baby went on therapy, and for 18 months or so was um, uh, um, on therapy and doing well, and then the mom disappeared. And um, I, I have no idea what happened. The mom left the Mississippi area, took her child, child stopped antiretroviral drugs, uh, the child protection agencies tried to track the baby down. Eventually, about a year later, I think, uh, the details are escaped me, they found the mom and the baby, and they tested the baby. And the baby had been off antiretroviral drugs for a year and had no virus. And in fact, her HIV antibody test was negative. She looked like she was HIV negative. So that was unexpected. Right? So what happened? Um, I would say that... It's certainly, some have said, we don't know for sure whether the baby was infected. It's possible, although I think unlikely, that all this virus that you're seeing in the baby is coming from the mom's cells, which are still in the baby, right? So when, the, when, there's, when, you, when you deliver a baby, the mom cells are in the baby. It takes weeks or so for those babies to clear, to, for the, all the maternal cells to go away. So it's possible that the mom cells contained HIV and that they slowly dropped over time. That's a lot of virus from these cells. And as a consequence, a lot of people are a little bit dubious as to that explanation, including myself. So the next possibility, and I think the most likely, is that the baby cells were infected, but it wasn't those long-lived memory cells I was talking about, the you know, chicken pox. I mean, the baby's only a day old, right? She hasn't had chicken pox. She hasn't had all these infections that forced the immune system to generate long-lived memory. So the cells that she has haven't yet been primed to live for decades. They're only primed to live for days. So if that's true, if the cells are living for days and you go on antiretroviral drugs, antiretroviral drugs prevent other cells from becoming infected, and all you do is wait for the old cells to die away, and you're cured. And I think that at the end of the day, that may have been what's happened. And, that, and if that's indeed what's happening, it would suggest that we should be able to cure other babies in the future uh, if they're infected. This is not going to happen very often, by the way, because it's a hell of a lot easier to prevent the infection than to cure it. And antiretroviral drugs given at the time of delivery, both to the mom and the baby, pretty much universally prevents the infection. I think in San Francisco, uh, I know of only one case in the past 15 years in which the virus actually had been transmitted to the baby because um, treatment can actually prevent this from happening. So I actually think this baby was cured, um, but unfortunately I don't think the mechanism of, a, of, of how this baby is cured pertains to what's happening in your more typical person whose major barrier are these long-lived resting memory T cells. So that's the baby. Let me just mention a couple other cases which also have gotten a lot of attention. Um, these are the Boston cases. You may hear more about them over the next year or so. The Boston cases are two people in, 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 who developed lymphoma and um, were on antiretroviral drugs, which were not stopped, and they got massive amount of chemotherapy to kill the lymphoma, 
and they had a transplant done from a donor, from a normal typical donor, someone whose cells were susceptible to HIV, not the Delta 32 story. And these people um, had a massive amount of chemotherapy, wiped out their own T cells, and had T cells rebuilt under the cover of current antiretroviral therapy. And now they've been out, now they're several years out, and they have no virus. Okay? I mean, this is just the amount of, this is just uh, describing how much HIV is in these cells uh, over a period of two or three years. Essentially, the amount of virus in subject one has become undetectable. And the same thing is happening in subject number two. Essentially, these two patients who just got routine bone marrow transplants, not, the, not what the Berlin patient had, are now several years after the transplant and have nothing, no virus anywhere that can be detected. And their antibody levels are declining. Now, are they cured? Well, we don't know uh, because they're still on meds. But, but you know, most experts think that it's probably about 50-50 likely that these patients are cured. And we will know eventually because, in theory, these patients, from what I understand, are going to stop antiretroviral drugs, and that will be the test. And I personally bet the virus won't rebound, but others are a bit more dubious. We will see. But if this is true, this would suggest that we don't need to have necessarily a rare donor with cells that aren't infectable with HIV. You can actually cure people with routine bone marrow transplants. Now, of course, we're not going to do that because you can die from a bone marrow transplant. Um, we're not going to do that unless you have another reason like lymphoma. All right, let me um, shift gears and just talk real quick about uh, the future. So I've talked about the baby case, which is not going to be generalizable, the Berlin patient, which is probably may never happen again because of the unusual circumstances of that case, these bone marrow transplants, which may happen in the future, but it's not going to apply to most people. Uh, because no one wants to do a bone marrow transplant just for the HIV. Um, and the Visconti cohort, which, which I think is intriguing, but that only applies to people with acute infection. So, so far, all these potential cures don't apply to your typical person. So how are we going to cure your typical person? Here we need, um, what, what the world wants are, are, are drugs that you can give to a person in San Francisco and in Uganda, right? You want to be able to do this globally. And you want to give it for a short period of time, and you don't want it to be too toxic. And you want it to basically get rid of the virus. That's what we want. Is that possible? Well, we'll see. The, the current most popular approach to trying to cure people with simple drugs is so-called shock and kill. And so what shock and kill is, is essentially um, a, um, a conceptual approach where you take a person on therapy, and you give them a drug aimed at shocking the virus out of its hiding place. Those long lived, you basically turn on these memory cells, forcing the virus to come out so that the immune system can see it and you can kill it. Okay? And, uh, and the question is, is that possible? So in a, in a nice study that was done by David Margolis and colleagues published in Nature last year and, 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 um, and, and another study, that confirmed this more recently by Sharon Lewin, it was shown that if you give someone on long-term therapy a drug which untangles the DNA, so-called HDAC inhibitors, these, these, these drugs, what they do is they, they go into your DNA and they untangle it in such a way that the DNA becomes active. Okay? That's, what these, uh, that's what these drugs do. 
and, um, and they're used for chemotherapy. I mean, they're potentially toxic. They're used to kill cancer cells. But it appears that they also cause HIV to come out. In, in nine people or so shown on this slide, the amount of RNA, the amount of virus being produced in the cells before and after one dose of this drug, Varinostat, um, an HSAC inhibitor, the amount of virus being produced from these cells in, the pe- in people went up several fold. So this proved the concept, right? You're not going to cure anyone with this amount of virus being produced after a single dose, but it proved the concept that we can at least shock. We can at least force the virus out of its hiding place. This is being done with, 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 um, with uh, Varinostat. Uh, our group, in, in collaboration with Bob Silicano, has been interested in looking at a drug that's been around for 60 years, abuse, a drug to treat alcoholic, alcoholism, also appears to have the same effect. Mechanism less clear. But in our study, when we gave patients low doses of, um, or standard doses of disulfiram, abuse, we saw the same thing. We're able to shock the virus out of its hiding place uh, so that we can at least see it. So that is a whole series of molecules moving into the pipeline to do that. At the same time people are trying to do the shock and kill approach, uh, we're also, and this is actually the area that, that Peter and I are most involved in, we're trying to modify the immune system to also change the environment that the, these cells lived in so that the immune system can actually start making virus on its own. Um, PD-1. There's really a lot of excitement about these molecules, these biologic, these um, immune-based therapeutics that block PD-1. They, they seem to have this capacity to, to really um, accelerate the cure of cancer, for example. It turns out that, that um, T cells that express PD-1 on the surface have lots of virus in it. It also turns out that CD8 T cells, the killer cells that have PD-1 on it, don't work that well. So we're wondering if you gave an antibody to PD-1, whether you, would, um, whether you would unleash the virus from the infected cells while turning on the killer cells. Right? This is the potential, um, you, you know, twice the bang for, for, for one intervention. And, um, and we've been working for years now to try to advance this into clinic, this idea. We're not there yet. Maybe in the next year or so we'll start doing this. Uh, there's been a lot of enthusiasm for the concept, the hypothesis, which was developed uh, by our colleague Rafiq Sekely and, and his team in, in Florida. A lot of enthusiasm for the concept, but a lot of concern that the toxicity may be too great. So this is a, this is a classic example of, of trying to balance risk and benefit. And we're not 100% sure where this is going to end up. Blocking PD-1 to turn on the immune system so it will kill infected cells is great. But when you do that, you turn the entire immune system on. And people who do this get really these inflammatory diseases like colitis and thyroiditis and so forth. So it's it's, it's, it's not without its risk, um, and, and that's why this has been delayed. But this is, I think, a leading example of how we're going to modify the immune system to advance uh, cure work. So let me just end with the conclusions here. Uh, there is multiple mechanisms which uh, contribute to HIV persistence. Um, all these can be addressed currently with therapeutic interventions, at least uh, theoretically. Um, I think, and, and many of my colleagues think, that before we even get too fancy and start doing all this shock and kill stuff and using anti-PD-1, we really got to first shut down the virus itself because if you don't block replication, um, when you're shocking the virus out of its hiding place, you're probably not going to get very far. Um, 
as illustrated by the challenges with the Berlin patient, now the Mississippi case, um, quantifying, characterizing the reservoir is a big problem. It's, it's, we don't have any really good ways to do that yet. Um, I personally doubt, short of some miraculous things like these bone marrow transplants, that no single molecule is going to do much by itself. Um, that ultimately a cure is going to require doing combination therapy, and combination therapy takes a long time to develop. First, you've got to do all the drugs by themselves, make sure they're safe and so forth. Um, and finally, I think the field needs to realize that, 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 that and, and the public, and, and we're, we need to be very careful about how we're publicizing this stuff. Um, yes, there's been some great examples of, of cures, but I think they have the low-lying fruit. Um, the tough stuff is ahead of us. Uh, using small molecules that are that are um, transportable around the world, um, that's not going to be easy. And it's probably going to take some decades of, of work. And most of the work early on is probably going to be negative, so we sort of have to balance that. So with that, I'll end. Here's a whole list of some of my collaborators, including Peter. Uh, we work as a team. We're funded by um, uh, the NIH. Uh, as Monica said, we, we are fortunate to have a very large NIH grant, uh, multiple millions of dollars that, that support this work at the DARE Collaboratory. We've also gotten a fair amount of funding from other groups, particularly AMFAR, uh, which has helped start many of our protocols. And with that, I'm going to end. I'm going to have to take some questions first, um, and then I'll introduce Peter. Um, uh, but thank you for your attention. You mentioned these memory cells that last decades. How do you know they last decades versus having information passed from one T cell to another in a hidden space? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's, um, we're trying to do that. So the bottom line is it's probably unlikely. That, I mean, I don't think anyone believes that a single T cell when you're three years old is still floating around your body when you're 50. Um, uh, or 35. Um, yeah, so, uh, um, but, uh, so how, yeah, so, so they, they almost certainly are maintained by homeostatic proliferation, the term. Basically, they replenish, they turn over. Uh, in mice, I think it's every few months. In humans, we don't know. So a colleague of ours, Dr. Hiroyo Hitano, uh, is about to, is trying to get some funding to do a study where she'll label T cells in people just to see how long they live. Um, I think uh, it's probably every several months these cells turn over. And, uh, and that's actually a susceptible, if, if that's indeed true, drugs that block proliferation might in fact accelerate the cure, and we're actually vaguely interested in a drug called rapamycin, serolimus, that might do that. But you're right. So I simplified things a bit too much. Yeah, that's a great question. And, um, you know, whether or not reinfection is possible. We can cure hep C very easily these days. Well, soon it'll be quite easy. And, and we've had some pe- I've had a patient of mine who was cured of hep C and then went out and got reinfected. Um, so this is a potential problem. With the Berlin patient, there are viruses that might be able to reinfect the, uh, Mr. Brown, but they're rare. Um, so he's probably pretty protected. Yeah, but for the most part, particularly the shock and kill approaches, 
you're not really permanently affecting the immune system. So once that virus is gone and the antibody, antibody levels go down, they're susceptible to reinfection in theory. Yeah, no, I, I so I'll, I'll tell the story. It's a great question. So she, she really wanted to know, you know, what role did actually um, the chemotherapy in the Berlin patient and these Boston cases um, have in actually um, causing the cure? And mentioned Mr. Jeff Getty, who um, uh, who was a um, uh, an activist in the mid 1990s. He died a few years ago. Uh, who underwent a baboon bone marrow transplant um, back in the bad days. Right, this was 95 uh, when we were desperate. I don't know if people remember back then, but we were so desperate that we tried to essentially do what the Berlin patient was. We tried to rebuild an immune system in Mr. Getty with cells known to be resistant to HIV. And these were cells from a baboon. So we tried to re- rebuild his, his bone marrow with a baboon bone marrow based on a, on a, on a very high-risk hypothesis at the time. So um, Mr. Getty underwent the transplant here in San Francisco. I was very much involved with that case. Uh, and within days, he was miraculously better. He had that look, I don't know, of, of, of a person who was dying of AIDS with the skin, the seborrhea, and the wasting, and the, the hair falling out. But within days, he gained back weight. His energy came back. His fevers went away. All the skin stuff disappeared. Um, and, and we couldn't quite – there's no reason to think – we didn't think it was the baboon cells, to be honest. Uh, immediately, we began to realize that simply giving profound levels of immunosuppression to a person with AIDS – did that actually have a benefit? Because Mr. Getty's viral load dropped dramatically. So we were all set to do that again without the baboon thing, and then treatment came along, and there was no reason to do it. But you're absolutely right that um, using uh, ablative therapy is the term, ablation. To, uh, if you go into a person with HIV and just knock out their immune system to the point you get rid of most of the virus, they have short-term benefit. But obviously destroying an immune system in a person with AIDS is not really um, a logical thing to do, and so there's this balance. Um, but I think under treatment, when you do that, and then you allow someone to rebuild their immune system, then you can cure someone. You were mentioning the, more of the small percentage of Northern Europeans that seem to be completely resistant to AIDS. Right. Um, and is there anything that can be done with uh, their stem cells that could... Sure. Yeah. No. They, the one percent of Europeans, North Europeans, that they're they're homozygous for the so-called Delta thirty-two deletion. Um, what's happening now is that that the, if you take those cells from an adult and give it to another adult, they have to be well matched for HLA, or they got otherwise you get rejection and graft versus host disease. But if you use cord blood, right, at the time of delivery, from a from a from the baby and the mom, um, those stem cells in the cord blood, for reasons I have no idea, are much easier to use in transplant settings. So that's actually where there's a lot of interest because um, then you don't need to have all the HLA matching. Uh, but So that's going on. But that ultimately the number of people who can donate stem cells is limited. And what, what other people are doing, Sangamo over in, the, across the, in Richmond has this really clever technology that appears to work that if you take your own stem cells out of the body and expose them to, these, um, to, this, to this technology they have, 
they have these like molecular scissors that go into the cells and cut CCR5. And you essentially take it, take it out of the equation. So you're making the cells, like the, the Berlin patient cells, and then you give it back. And we've done a few studies like that, and they, and they seem to work. Uh, the, but, but ultimately, they're, in order to do that, what you're going to have to do is take a person on therapy and take out their stem cells, gene modify it, easy. But before putting it back in, you've got to get rid of everything first. And that's just so risky. Right? We've done it with lymphoma patients, but we're not going to do it in a typical person with HIV. So this is a, the balance and so forth. I think I have a time. Is there any other? Did you have another question? Um, before, let me just, uh, okay, so I don't think there's any other questions. Um, I'm going to now let Dr. Hunt take over. And, um, and Peter is a man who, um, who I met, uh, was it 15 years or so ago maybe? Not so long. Came into my room. He was a medical resident at the time. Sat down and said, you know, I have this theory that chronic inflammation may be the major reason why people are getting sick, and then outlined a whole series of studies, which were remarkably similar to an R01 grant that I was working on at the time. Um, and I just looked at him and I said, how did you figure all this out as a medical resident? He's never told me how I figured this out. So from that get-go, he's well known to be a very clever and innovative thinker. Uh, Peter got his training in medical school at Yale. Uh, and uh, his residency here at UCSF. Uh, he's trained in infectious disease. Um, and he's still an assistant clinical professor, which shocks everyone because, uh, well, he's young, uh, and I tease him about that. But he really is actually, you know, when you're like me, a professor, you're supposed to be an international expert. Uh, otherwise, you get fired. But when you're an assistant professor of medicine, you're really only supposed to be known locally. But yet he is actually truly... Um, an international expert is invited to speak all over the world about this stuff and currently is the chair of one of the more important committees that are defining you know, future therapeutic in, uh, uh, approaches um, and a wonderful clinician and a great speaker. And he's going to talk about the immunology of HIV, uh, inflammation, and perhaps its interaction with aging. Peter? Well, thanks. Thanks so much, Steve, for that really kind uh, introduction, and uh, thanks for staying here late uh, uh, to uh, to discuss uh, biology, which can be a complicated thing. So, um, uh, so, so thank you for being here. So, I'm going to talk about the immunology of HIV, but but really focus on why this is relevant now in the modern treatment era when we. Uh, are you know are really capable of suppressing virus replication in, in the majority of our patients and you know, Jay Levy I think talked to you uh, several uh, classes ago about the HIV 101 uh, uh, the basics of uh, you know viral load and CD4 count and 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 how those impact the pathogenesis of HIV disease but I'm going to talk to you a little bit more about more cutting-edge stuff now, about why the immune system still matters, uh, even in treated patients with HIV disease. And we start by going back uh, to what things were like in the bad old, the bad old days, as Steve described, uh, in, in the mid-1990s. Uh, and what I'm showing you here on the slide is the average uh, life expectancy of a 25-year-old uh, living with HIV before uh, we had the effective drugs. Uh, 
uh, average life expectancy only seven years. Fifty percent of the people die uh, within seven years. Um, uh, and with those early drugs uh, in, in the you know, mid-1990s, mid to late 1990s, we saw a dramatic improvement in life expectancy. People were living already 18 years longer um, uh, uh, with uh, the new drugs. So, so things were you know, clearly improving. But we, uh, many of us were asking whether uh, these new HIV medicines or highly active antiretroviral therapy, HART, as many people uh, called it back then, uh, whether this really restores completely normal health uh, in, in patients living with HIV infection. And so we and many others would, would look at patient CD4 T-cell counts. And Jay you know, probably told you about how CD4 T-cell counts decline during untreated HIV disease. And the lower it gets, uh, the weaker your immune system and the more uh, susceptible you are to a lot of infections and, and, and AIDS. Um, and what we did is we followed patients uh, who started with very low T-cell counts. Um, you know, normal is uh, 500 uh, uh, shown here. Uh, and um, uh, many patients uh, uh, start at uh, very advanced HIV disease, uh, less than 200. Um, and we followed these patients for over a decade, uh, uh, over 10 years of suppressive HIV therapy, and, and looked what happened to their CD4 counts. And, and for most patients, uh, CD4 counts continued to increase up through a decade, uh, and the majority of patients achieved normal CD4 counts over time, which is uh, really remarkable, but uh, really took a long time to get there for many people. Uh, but a substantial fraction of people, about 40%, uh, even after a decade of suppressive therapy, failed to restore a normal CD4 count. So even just looking at this laboratory marker, uh, we saw that we weren't restoring totally normal uh, immune function. And if we looked at survival, I showed you, um, you know, how survival really improved um, in the early treatment era. And as the drugs got better and easier to take with fewer side effects, um, survival improved even further um, uh, in the 2000s. Uh, but still, even with modern therapies, uh, the life expectancy of patients living with HIV is still about 10 years shorter uh, than the general population. Um, now, uh, some recent studies suggest that if you start therapy early enough in the course of HIV disease, you catch people when their T-cell counts are still high and get them on therapy early, um, that you can get close to restoring a normal life expectancy, or at least that's what's being projected. Um, but many of our patients are still being diagnosed late. You know, there's a lot of stigma associated with testing, particularly a lot of places in the world, and, and, and people are coming into care with very low T-cell counts, or they have substance abuse or mental illness and are, aren't engaged in care. And so they come to the clinic already with very advanced disease. Uh, and these folks, we think, will still have a, a shortened life expectancy, uh, even though we're able to do much, much better uh, with modern therapy. And what are patients dying of? Uh, well, it used to be uh, mostly AIDS infections, severe uh, infections that people with normal immune systems don't get sick from, uh, or cancers that uh, people with normal immune systems don't get sick from. Uh, but more and more, it's these so-called non-AIDS causes of death. Uh, that are affecting people living with HIV. And so a recent very large um, uh, a cohort study spanning you know, uh, several countries and, and, and large you know, 
uh, you know, nearly 40,000 patients followed. Um, uh, just track the causes of death from people living with HIV. Uh, and over half of the deaths were non-AIDS uh, causes, non-AIDS malignancies or cancers, non-AIDS infections, uh, like infections that people without HIV can get, cardiovascular disease, heart attacks and strokes, um, liver-related complications like hepatitis C and cirrhosis. Now, these are accounting for uh, uh, many of the causes of death uh, in our patients living with HIV. Uh, and, and so uh, the tide is really changing in terms of what people are getting sick from. And many morbidities or diseases of, um, uh, that we commonly associate with the aging process are also increased in people living with HIV. And, and so it's not just those causes of death, uh, but cardiovascular disease is also dramatically increased in people with HIV. We think 80% 80, 80 increased risk of heart disease in people living with HIV than the general population, even when you control for smoking and other things. Um, Many uh, non-AIDS cancers uh, are increased in people living with uh, HIV, uh, particularly in uh, cancers that are associated with chronic uh, inf asymptomatic infections. Bone fractures and osteoporosis, thinning of the bones that we normally think of in uh, older women, uh, postmenopausal women, uh, we're seeing even in younger uh, HIV-infected men. Um, uh, uh, and uh, uh, we, we see increased liver disease, kidney disease, cognitive decline in memory loss that we normally think about in the elderly, and even frailty, uh, you know, a condition where you have multiple mor morbidities and have trouble getting around. We normally think of this uh, in elderly populations, but we're seeing this more in younger people living with HIV. Um, and so why is all of this happening? Um, uh, this uh, reached the popular press a few uh, years ago, David France uh, wrote a piece uh, in uh, New York Magazine and call, ca called this another kind of AIDS crisis. Um, a striking number of HIV-infected patients are living longer but getting older faster, showing early signs of dementia and bone weakness normally seen in the elderly. Uh, and a key uh, point uh, here that he raised in the article is that it's an accumulation of multiple comorbidities, multiple different diseases uh, in, the, in the same person uh, that, that people are contending with. Um, and so some people have called this process uh, accelerated aging of people living with HIV. I think that's probably not an accurate uh, phrase because uh, not all diseases associated with aging are increased in HIV, but certainly many of them are, uh, and many of our patients are, are contending with a lot of these uh, chronic illnesses of aging. And, uh, and so why is this happening? Uh, well, many chronic diseases of aging may be driven by lifestyle factors and the toxicity of the drugs we're using to treat HIV. And this had really occupied the attention of the HIV field for many years. Uh, certainly our patients are more likely to smoke. Uh, uh, they may be more likely to use injection drugs and other things that may you know, uh, you know, cause problems. Some of the drugs uh, may have metabolic side effects that could increase the risk of cardiovascular disease and other things. Uh, and, and so this was really the focus of the HIV community uh, in the late 90s through, the, um, uh, through uh, much of the 2000s. Uh, but things really started to change uh, uh, when a, an important study was published called the SMART study. 
And what this study did is it took it, this is randomized, it was a big randomized controlled trial and, and the best evidence we can get in, in medicine, uh, where you, know, you randomly assign you know, one group of patients uh, uh, to uh, one treatment strategy, in this case our standard of care, which is continuous uh, antiretroviral therapy. You start the meds and you stay on for the rest of your life. Uh, versus uh, an intermittent uh, strategy where you only use the drugs when you absolutely needed them. If your CD4 count arose above a given threshold, you would stop the drugs because the drugs are toxic and may cause heart disease and things. We want to avoid using them unless we absolutely need to. And everyone went into this study thinking uh, that the people who were uh, getting the intermittent strategy of therapy would actually have fewer heart attacks and strokes and, 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 um, uh, and, and, and uh, these uh, chronic uh, diseases of aging. But what they saw was the exact opposite. This graph shows uh, the, uh, the incidence of major cardiovascular events, and they were actually higher in the people who were starting and stopping HIV therapy. Uh, and much lower in patients who remained on the drugs. Uh, and so what this study told us is that the virus is worse for you than the drugs, that the virus itself was increasing the risk of cardiovascular disease. And we saw similar trends with a lot of other types of illnesses. So this got people really thinking that perhaps uh, HIV itself uh, is increasing the risk of age-associated diseases. And, and we started thinking about this process called persistent inflammation as a, as a potential cause, a potential mechanism. So what is inflammation? Uh, so uh, inflammation is the immune system's response to any infection uh, or tissue damage. If you, uh, if you take a hammer and, and, and accidentally hit your thumb, what happens? It gets swollen, it gets red, it gets painful. That's inflammation in the thumb. What if you get a cold in the back of your throat? Uh, you get redness, you have swelling, you may get a little fever. That's inflammation in the back of your throat and your upper respiratory tract. Uh, but it's also possible to have very low levels of inflammation and a slightly overactive immune system throughout the body. Uh, and, and it may not cause any symptoms like the sore throat and the fever, et cetera, uh, but that slightly overactive uh, immune system uh, can take its toll on the body. Imagine going around with a sore throat uh, for the rest of your life. You know, you, you feel pretty miserable, uh, but if you have slow, uh, low levels of inflammation throughout the body, it takes its toll uh, on the blood vessels, on the brain, on the bones, and all these different organ systems uh, that we're concerned about with our aging patients. And this you know, uh, made the front cover of my favorite medical journal, Time Magazine, uh, uh, several years ago, uh, the secret killer, uh, uh, inflammation, the surprising link between inflammation and heart attacks, cancer, Alzheimer's, and other diseases um, of aging. Uh, so this has nothing to do with HIV, uh, but these are concepts that were emerging uh, uh, in uh, the general population uh, as, as drivers of the aging process. And uh, why might this be going on in people with HIV? Uh, well, we get an important clue from nature. Uh, and I want to introduce you on the left uh, to the Sudi Mangabe monkey. Uh, the Sudi Mangabe 
uh, is the natural host of the SIV virus, the simian immunodeficiency virus, uh, where one of the strains of HIV actually came from. Uh, this monkey lives in Western Africa, and when infected uh, with SIV, it infects their CD4 T cells, just like HIV infects the CD4 T cells of people. Uh, and it uh, has very high levels of virus replication, uh, if not higher than we see in people with HIV-infected people. Uh, yet, this monkey does not get sick and lives a normal lifespan. But you take the same virus and you put it into a different monkey and all of a sudden you have the animal model of AIDS. The rhesus macaque on the right has very similar levels of virus replication, yet it progresses to AIDS and death uh, very quickly. So what's the difference between the two monkeys? Well, it's not the virus. The virus is exactly the same, but rather it's the immune system's response to the virus that determines how rapidly the monkeys progress. So in the monkey that doesn't get sick, the Sudi mangabe, it has very minimal levels of generalized immune activation. Uh, minimal levels of inflammation, the immune system is just not getting too excited about the virus that's, uh, that's there. But the monkey on the right has massive levels of systemic immune activation. All arms of the immune system get turned on inappropriately. Uh, and the more of that that happens, the more rapidly these animals progress um, uh, to AIDS. And that same thing happens in HIV-infected people. Uh, studies done in the late 1990s by Janice Georgie and colleagues showed that um, uh, people with high levels of immune activation progress much more rapidly uh, uh, to, uh, to AIDS. And what do we know about uh, immune activation in people? Our first hint actually came the, from the very first report of AIDS uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine in December of 1981 before we knew that HIV was the cause of AIDS. These are the first reports of gay men living in Los Angeles with PCP pneumonia that uh, you probably heard about uh, uh, earlier uh, uh, in the course. And what everyone remembers uh, from this study, uh, you can't really see it that well on the slide here, but I'm just circling it for you, is that uh, they measured CD4 counts uh, in, these, uh, in these men with PCP pneumonia. And, and even before they knew HIV caused AIDS, they saw that these men had extremely low CD4 T cell counts uh, compared to HIV uninfected uh, individuals. And so that was the first clue that having you know, CD4 T cell depletion was a major driver uh, of AIDS. But what a lot of people forget is that they measured something else. They, you know, I, I've talked to Michael Gottlieb, uh, the lead author on this uh, um, uh, author on this paper, about how this happened. And you know, immunology was still a you know a very early field, and they were looking at these. Uh, these are just the markers that they had on the shelf. They tested everything that they had, uh, and uh, it just so happened that they got lucky. And they got the CD4 T cell marker, and they also had this other marker that later became known as CD38. And that became um, known as a, a, a general marker of T cell activation. Uh, and this marker was really, really high on these patients um, uh, with uh, PCP pneumonia. Uh, so there was evidence uh, uh, from the very first report of AIDS uh, that systemic T cell activation was a major um, 
uh, a factor associated with the pathogenesis of the disease. And, and, and we and many other groups uh, have gone on to look at what happens during treatment. Um, and um, here on the right are patients um, uh, in red with uh, our patients with uh, untreated HIV disease with a high viral load. And if you compare them to people who are on treatment uh, with an undetectable viral load in green, you see that these markers of T-cell activation go way down. Um, so treatment really does help reduce uh, uh, immune activation. Uh, but the key is it doesn't normalize. Even after years uh, of viral suppression on therapy, if you compare them uh, to HIV-uninfected individuals in blue, it remains abnormally high. Um, and other groups have looked at other markers of inflammation in, in the bloodstream. Uh, some of you may be familiar with a marker called CRP, a C-reactive protein. Uh, that seems to predict an increased risk of cardiovascular disease, even in people without HIV. It's another one of these uh, systemic markers of inflammation. Uh, and what this graph shows is that you know, people uh, with HIV who are well-suppressed on HIV therapy uh, have about a 50 to 75% uh, increased level of CRP uh, compared to HIV-uninfected individuals you know, when you match them uh, for other factors like age and gender. Um, and if you look at other uh, markers of inflammation, uh, there's an important one here called IL-6, uh, an inflammatory cytokine, and that's much, much higher in people with HIV uh, than uh, the HIV-uninfected population. Uh, and so, uh, and it's the case uh, for several other markers as well. Uh, they uh, may go down with antiretroviral therapy, but they don't normalize. And if you look in uh, the lymph nodes or in the lining of the gut uh, where a lot of the immune cells of the body lives, uh, you see uh, a severe damage induced by HIV uh, to, the, uh, to, to where your immune system is supposed to coordinate responses. On the right here, uh, all this purple here, this looks like a modern art uh, exhibit here, and, um, and, and all I want you to focus on is just all that purple. All that purple uh, is uh, T-cells. Um, uh, that are finding their antigen-presenting cells and, and looking for something to respond to in the lymph nodes. Uh, and they need to find uh, these, uh, uh, these antigen-presenting cells uh, come up right up next to them to show them an antigen uh, that they're supposed to respond to. If you get a vaccine, uh, your T cells need to you know, uh, have that antigen presented to them uh, in these uh, tight little spaces in the lymph nodes uh, in order to respond. Um, and so you need these densely packed uh, purple cells in there for everything to work right. But in someone with HIV, you see a lot less purple and a lot more light blue. That light blue is scarring of the lymph nodes. That's collagen. Uh, the, the lymph nodes from the inflammatory process get scarred down, and the T cells can't find the antigen-presenting cells that they need uh, to develop immune responses. And this scarring of the lymph nodes does not really improve that much uh, during HIV therapy. Uh, it, you know, with progressive HIV disease, you get more and more of this, and it doesn't necessarily normalize. And this affects your ability to recover normal T cell counts during therapy and to, and to have um, uh, robust immune responses to infections later. So what are the clinical consequences of persistent immune activation and inflammation during antiretroviral therapy? 
Well, I'm just listing uh, several of the things that have been associated uh, with elevations in inflammatory markers during HIV therapy here. Uh, first, uh, mortality. You know, patients are with high levels of inflammation during uh, therapy are at much higher risk of all-cause mortality, much higher risk for cardiovascular disease, higher risk for lymphoma, and perhaps other cancers, higher risk uh, for blood clots uh, in the veins uh, uh, and in the lungs uh, called venous thromboembolism, higher risk for type 2 diabetes, higher risk for cognitive uh, decline or memory loss, um, and also higher risk of frailty, you know, that accumulation of multiple, you know, morbidities that decrease your ability to get around uh, and, and function very well, uh, that also uh, seems to be associated uh, with higher levels of inflammation. So what's causing all this inflammation uh, during antiretroviral therapy? If we want to come up with uh, strategies to decrease it, we need to know what's causing it. And the first uh, obvious place to look is the virus itself. As Steve talked about just earlier, if you stop drugs in most patients, the virus comes right back because with current strategies, we can't eradicate the virus in most patients, uh, absent a bone marrow transplant and the like. And if you look hard enough for the virus with um, very sensitive uh, blood tests, you can find it uh, in the blood. Uh, our clinical assays are pictured here in these open circles uh, uh, denoting an undetectable uh, viral load in, in patients starting therapy. Uh, but if you uh, look at, with these uh, so-called single copy assays that can detect, detect a single virus uh, in a milliliter of blood, uh, you'll find uh, very low levels of the virus uh, underneath the hood, if you will, if you look hard enough. And about 80% of patients uh, will have some virus detectable in the blood if you look hard enough. And that virus may be activating innate immune responses, even though we've largely blocked ongoing productive uh, replication. It's still leaching out of cells. And if you look hard enough in the gut tissue, uh, it's even easier to find virus. Um, the gut tissue is where most of the T cells in the body live. And Peter Anton's group in UCLA many years ago did a study where he took patients with an undetectable viral load in the blood, and then they underwent uh, a rectal biopsies, and he looked for virus um, uh, in, in the rectum. And in 60% of those patients, um, he was able to find detectable virus in the rectal tissue um, uh, when it was undetectable in the blood. Uh, so we can suppress the virus with available drugs, but we can't get rid of it entirely. And that virus that continues to leach out of cells uh, may be activating uh, the immune system. And might there be indirect mechanisms by which HIV might drive uh, persistent inflammation and immune activation uh, during therapy? Uh, well, there was a, a very you know, uh, a transformational idea uh, that came from Danny Duick and Jason Brenchley at the NIH uh, several years ago now. Uh, this concept of microbial translocation uh, or the leaky gut uh, syndrome uh, as a cause of immune activation in HIV. And um, what I'd like you to focus on here is this little cartoon of the lining of the gut in a normal person without HIV infection. You know, this uh, beige area here is the lining of the gut. Uh, the immune cells are behind it. Uh, and on the inside of the gut uh, is where the stool is. All the bacteria in the, in the poop, in the stool, you know, lives uh, uh, inside the gut. 
and you have this brick wall here that prevents uh, those bacteria from getting inside uh, into the bloodstream. Um, now, what happens in HIV uh, is you get uh, holes in that brick wall, uh, and these bacteria uh, that look like little pieces of rice, I guess, uh, they're, <laughs> they're able to get across that brick wall and get into the bloodstream. Uh, and since the immune system is depleted in the gut, that first line of defense is gone. Uh, so these bacteria can get into the bloodstream and activate um, uh, inflammation in the rest of the body. And what we showed uh, uh, several years ago now is that uh, patients with untreated HIV disease, just like with the immune activation markers, have high levels uh, of uh, these bacterial products in the blood. This is a, a LPS or lipopolysaccharide. This is a piece of, um, uh, of, uh, of a type of bacteria that lives in the, uh, inside the gut. Uh, but we're detecting this in the bloodstream of people with HIV. Uh, and it goes down uh, during uh, suppressive antiretroviral therapy in green, but it fails to normalize compared to HIV-uninfected individuals, despite years of viral suppression. Uh, so we can still have, we still have this problem of the leaky gut, uh, which may contribute to immune activation. And we've also wondered whether other viruses contribute to immune activation in HIV disease. Most of our patients with HIV aren't just infected with one virus, uh, HIV. They're infected with a whole series of other viruses. Um, uh, Steve mentioned earlier, you know, getting the chickenpox virus and it lives with you for the rest of your life. Where there are, there are other viruses like that, uh, in particular CMV, or cytomegalovirus, uh, that affects many patients uh, uh, with um, uh, HIV. Uh, and this um, uh, slide uh, uh, didn't project uh, for some reason, but I think you have it in your handout. Um, and uh, what this slide uh, uh, did show, it's a, a really important study from Lewis Picker's group uh, uh, up in Portland. Uh, and what he did is he looked at uh, healthy young adults um, with uh, asymptomatic CMV infection. And that, by the way, is 60% of the people in the room here. 60% of us have CMV. We either got it you know, when we were uh, in, in utero, uh, around childbirth, when we went to daycare, or when we kissed the first person as an adolescent, uh, we got CMV. Um, and CMV rarely causes symptoms. Uh, 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 in, in people as they, uh, as they live their lives, um, but um, uh, it has massive effects on the immune system. And the, and the slide that's in your syllabus shows uh, that 10% of the memory T cells in the blood of someone with asymptomatic CMV infection are devoted to keeping CMV at bay, a virus that's causing no symptoms, a virus that's very hard to, de uh, to detect if we swab the saliva, if we measure it in the blood, if we you know, measure it in other bodily fluids. It's very hard to detect it replicating in a healthy person, yet it's inducing massive immune responses, 10% of the, of the memory T cell repertoire. And the situation is even worse uh, for patients living with HIV uh, because when the immune system gets very weak, CMV is allowed to replicate more, 
uh, and uh, induces even more immune responses. And so in this slide, we're looking at uh, immune responses directed against only a very small part of the CMV virus. Uh, so the numbers are substantially lower here. Uh, but the key point is that people living with HIV, whether they're untreated or uh, patients on therapy in green, have much higher levels of CMV-specific immune responses uh, than uh, people without uh, HIV, uh, likely because there's so much more CMV around, uh, even when they're not getting sick from the virus. And so this uh, led us uh, to do a study, which uh, also, for some reason, is not projecting uh, uh, in the slide here, but I think is in your syllabus, uh, where we gave patients uh, uh, with uh, treated HIV infection uh, valgancyclovir. It's the most commonly used drug to treat CMV infection. But we gave it to patients who had asymptomatic uh, uh, CMV infection with HIV and showed that we could reduce uh, systemic immune activation by treating the CMV. And this uh, established for the first time that CMV was actually one of the drivers of uh, immune activation uh, in HIV infection. And so what about initiating treatment uh, earlier in the course of, uh, of infection? Might this uh, also help prevent persistent inflammation uh, during antiretroviral therapy? Uh, well, the answer is probably yes. Um, and so there's a very important study uh, published uh, uh, just two years ago now from a group in Boston uh, that looked at one of these um, soluble markers of inflammation and monocyte activation in the blood, uh, soluble CD163. And so uh, this is uh, an immune activation marker. And they looked at patients um, with chronic HIV infection right before they were about to start antiretroviral therapy, and that's these people here. They have very high levels of this marker compared to HIV uninfected individuals here. But when these people went on therapy, you saw a dramatic decline in immune activation, as we've seen with many other markers. But the key point is that they remained uh, significantly higher uh, than the people without HIV. They had persistent, ongoing levels of immune activation despite therapy. But when they looked at people who they diagnosed with very recent HIV infection, so these are people who we caught within the first six months of their HIV infection. Normally, as I mentioned, we're catching people later on into the course of the disease, several years in, when the T-cell count has already fallen. But they were able to identify several people within the first six months of their HIV infection. Uh, and uh, at that stage of the infection, immune activation levels weren't quite as high. Uh, and when they put these folks on antiretroviral therapy, their levels uh, were normalized you know, compared to people without HIV. And so we think that if we can catch people early enough uh, uh, and get them on treatment early, uh, that we may be able to uh, uh, prevent uh, this persistent inflammatory state uh, that may drive a, a lot of the diseases of aging that we're seeing. And we think this may be why uh, some of the projections are if we start therapy early, we may get closer to normalizing life expectancy. Um, so I think all these things are coming together and are the reasons why the treatment community is now moving uh, towards recommending earlier and earlier initiation of antiretroviral therapy. You know, Diane Havlier really led the way uh, a few years ago uh, by saying that here in San Francisco, we were going to offer people HIV uh, treatment regardless of the stage of uh, their HIV infection. Uh, you're HIV positive, we will offer you therapy regardless of what your 
CD4 count is. And the rest of the world is now starting to catch up uh, uh, with us uh, here in San Francisco. But a lot of it's motivated on these immunologic concepts uh, that we may be able to prevent you know, uh, uh, a lot of the diseases of aging if we start early enough. And then to, uh, to finish up, um, uh, I want to say a few uh, words about commonly used uh, medicines uh, that, um, uh, that have anti-inflammatory properties that may be a benefit to people with HIV. One of those classes of drugs are statins. Um, uh, um, these are the cholesterol drugs uh, that, that help prevent uh, heart disease. Um, and a lot of people think that one of the ways that those drugs uh, prevents a heart disease, not necessarily by lowering cholesterol, but also by lowering inflammation. Uh, the, statin, the statin class of drugs is particularly good at doing that. Um, and Grace McComsey from Cleveland just uh, recently presented these data. They're not published yet, but uh, were just presented at the, um, uh, the big HIV meeting of the year a few weeks ago. Uh, and uh, she uh, did a randomized trial of uh, uh, one of these statin drugs, rosuvastatin, uh, uh, compared to placebo, just a sugar pill in blue, uh, and showed that if she gave well-suppressed uh, treated patients uh, uh, rosuvastatin, she was able to lower uh, markers of monocyte activation uh, in, in the blood, uh, which... Um, again, uh, predicts uh, uh, earlier mortality, cardiovascular disease, and the like. And so even in patients with relatively normal cholesterol levels uh, with HIV, uh, there could potentially be a benefit to some of these commonly used anti-inflammatory drugs, and we need to do larger studies uh, to, to see whether there's a clinical benefit. And then aspirin is another one. Uh, we all probably have this in our medicine cabinet at home. Uh, many of us may even take it every day. Um, uh, but aspirin uh, uh, has anti-inflammatory effects as well. Um, and it's starting to be studied in HIV-infected patients as well. Uh, Megan O'Brien presented a study that was just published uh, a few months ago uh, that presented at a conference uh, last year uh, from which I got the slide. Uh, and she took patients with HIV and people without HIV, uh, gave them aspirin for a week, and she showed that there was a reduction in monocyte activation uh, uh, with just a week of aspirin. This is an uncontrolled study. They didn't have one of those placebo uh, uh, arms, uh, so uh, this really does need to be confirmed in a larger, well-controlled study. Uh, but at least this uh, was some encouraging uh, data suggesting that there may be some potential benefit to aspirin in HIV. This is another area that we're actively studying. And then the last intervention to talk about is diet and exercise. And this is not just the usual, you know, you go and see your doctor and at the end of the visit it's always, yeah, yeah, you got to lose some weight, you got to exercise and you got to watch what you eat. Now, it's more than that, and, and, I, um, and I'm talking to my patients now about the biology behind this uh, because I think it's really important. Um, it turns out uh, that both high-fat and high-carbohydrate diets will increase inflammation, and this is really well studied uh, and is fact. If you drink Coca-Cola uh, or orange juice, um, and, and, follow, and measure uh, mar med uh, markers of inflammation in your blood um, uh, for several hours afterwards, you'll see an increase, a spike. If you uh, drink a milkshake or cream, uh, you'll also see an increase in inflammation. And you'll also see microbial translocation, uh, those bits and pieces of bacteria that I talked about that we, c we could see in the blood. We can detect that in the blood after you, you know, have uh, you know, cream. Uh, 
Uh, and that's because uh, these bits and pieces of bacteria, LPS, they actually bind to lipid. They bind to fat. And when you, when you have a high-fat meal, you're actually, it's like a sponge that's bringing bacterial products uh, uh, into the bloodstream, causing inflammation. This is why McDonald's is bad for you. <laughs> okay? <laughs> so, so these are the things that are driving inflammation in people without HIV. It's even more of a problem in people with HIV where there's already uh, this hit um, uh, to inflammation. And so it's important to talk about this. It's important for people to know um, the science behind this. We also know that exercise uh, reduces inflammation. Well-controlled studies in elderly populations show that exercise programs reduce inflammation. Um, randomized controlled trials. Um, we also know that trials of exercise in the elderly show uh, increased functional status, uh, decreased uh, insulin resistance and diabetes, uh, and improvements in even cognitive function with exercise. And so while uh, we're, we still don't have definitive studies in HIV, though many of them are now being planned uh, to see whether some interventions in diet and exercise really have important uh, and, and beneficial effects, you know, I think we know enough in people without HIV that it's important to talk with our patients about uh, because these are things that people can do without taking uh, an extra fancy drug uh, to actually decrease, uh, potentially decrease their risk uh, of diseases uh, associated with aging. So to summarize, despite optimal therapy, uh, HIV may decrease life expectancy and increase many chronic diseases of aging. Immune activation and inflammation persist uh, despite therapy and may explain much of this risk. Earlier initiation of antiretroviral therapy may help, uh, and targeted interventions directed at the underlying causes of inflammation may also hold some promise, and that may be optimization of the HIV therapy, <clears throat> interventions to decrease the leaky gut syndrome or microbial translocation, uh, or treating other silent infections like CMV with uh, safer drugs uh, that may come down the pike in the future. And then we need to think about statins and aspirin, um, which may hold promise but need uh, to be studied in larger, more definitive studies. So with that, I'd like to you know, close by acknowledging uh, all of my collaborators, including uh, Steve um, uh, and uh, the rest of our group here at UCSF, our colleagues at, uh, um, uh, at Case Western and, and Cleveland University of Minnesota, um, uh, NIH, um, uh, uh, our cardiology colleagues here, uh, and uh, also some of our international colleagues as well, and our funding agencies as well, including the NIH. Uh, so thank you, and I'm happy to take questions. Are you seeing any difference in inflammation markers in these elite controls that have ever been on antiretroviral therapy compared to those that are virally suppressed? Yeah, that's a, it's a, it's a great question. So, and one that an elite controller asked me about you know, four or five years ago. And we were, I was consenting him for a research study. We're trying to figure out how uh, his ability to control the virus might shed uh, uh, a light on developing an HIV vaccine. And I was explaining this to him. And he said, that's all well and good, but I want you to tell me why my CD4 count is, is dropping, uh, despite controlling virus replication. 
And so we looked at that, uh, and it turns out that about 15% of elite controllers, people who have undetectable viral loads in the blood, their immune system is able to control the virus, 15% of them will experience, at least over time, uh, T-cell decline uh, at a slow rate, but, but it does decline. Uh, and they have abnormally high levels of systemic immune activation. Uh, so... Uh, so although they're able to control virus replication, there may be a cost to that. Uh, we've gone on uh, to show that uh, uh, with uh, Priscilla Shu, who I mentioned here, the cardiologist, uh, that elite controllers actually have abnormal levels of um, atherosclerosis. You know, there's some you know, surrogate marker of uh, cardiovascular disease. Uh, that's been confirmed by another group in Boston. Um, and uh, we've worked with groups in uh, Minnesota to show uh, that elite controllers also have abnormal levels of scarring in their lymph nodes. Um, uh, uh, so they also have this chronic effect of inflammation uh, on the immune system. And then most recently, just presented a few weeks ago uh, by Hiroyu Hitano, uh, who uh, uh, Steve uh, mentioned earlier, um, uh, she did a trial of treating uh, elite controllers uh, with HIV meds. Uh, they're already controlling the virus, uh, relatively speaking, with the immune system. But she was able to show that if you treat people with drugs, that residual amount of virus that's left, you can reduce it. And when you do that, you decrease levels of immune activation. So even in patients who are elite controllers, um, uh, uh, they may have abnormal immune activation. Yeah. Would um, those two different kind of monkeys explain? There's a, a number of people I've read about that have not safe sex practices and and have never have never you know gotten HIV um, despite their lifestyles over the over the years. Um, yeah, it's a it's a really good question. Um, I think it's probably, I think the, the monkeys I showed are probably unlikely to explain this phenomenon. So the question is, does, you know, does the monkey that doesn't get sick from AIDS explain why some people can have really risky behavior and never get infected with the virus in the first place? I don't think it's likely to explain that phenomenon um, uh, uh, because the, those monkeys are readily infected in the wild. You know, they're getting infected all the time naturally. Um, uh, but... Um, but it may, um, uh, there may be clues to it. Um, so um, if you have more uh, immune activation in your gut uh, or it, it, uh, in, in the genital area because of a sexually transmitted uh, disease, you're more likely to get uh, uh, HIV. Um, if you have more activated T-cell targets, um, uh, at the site uh, of HIV um, uh, exposure, uh, you're more likely to get HIV infected. Um, uh, but uh, the, the, the people who are so-called highly exposed seronegatives that you're referring to um, uh, tend to be uh, more like the patients that uh, gave rise to the bone marrow donor for Tim Timothy Brown. Uh, they have these uh, rare uh, mutations uh, that, uh, uh, where they lack CCR5, um, a, a co-receptor for HIV. Uh, and there may be other uh, factors that protect them uh, from getting HIV infected, uh, uh, but they're likely to be different um, uh, 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 than those in, in, in the Sudi Mangabe, I think. Uh, but, but, but we're actually doing some studies now uh, here in San Francisco and others around the world uh, uh, to try and find other factors that 
you know, uh, may protect people from getting HIV in the first place. Um, and that may uh, give us uh, uh, new insights into developing effective vaccines uh, and microbicides um, uh, to prevent um, uh, HIV infection. So, so I'm getting uh, the, the cues to wrap things up. Uh, is that uh, uh, so? So I'm happy to talk. If you have questions after, I'm happy to uh, talk. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.